Hey, welcome to a special condensed season two of the On Verge podcast, where we'll be delivering five episodes in 20 days leading up to the October 9th Ministry Leadership Conference sponsored by the Northwest Coast Presbytery. This conference is called Verge, and the theme this year is Think Again. And season two of this podcast will include shorter conversations with each of the fabulous speakers or worship leaders for the Verge Leadership Conference. So learn more and register for Verge at verge.northwestcoast.org. That's V-E-R-G-E dot northwestcoast, all spelled out, dot org. Dr. David Camped, also known as the Dialogue Guy, founded the Dialogue Company in 2018 out of his passion to help people work better together, especially in the stickiest issues of the day, like race and privilege. And he's going to be with us at Verge 2021 on October 9th, 2021. You can register for Verge at verge.northwestcoast.org. David was born in Detroit, Michigan, and he grew up there. He then went to college at Princeton University before doing doctoral studies at University of California, Berkeley. After that, he was appointed by President Bill Clinton to the President's Initiative on Race and has been doing amazing work with organizations all over the country ever since. And for all of us white people out there who want to make a difference when it comes to race relations and privilege, he published the White Ally Toolkit to help us think about how we can make a difference. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Camped. So blessed today to be here with Dr. David Camped, the dialogue guy. David Camped has had such a remarkable life, born in Detroit, went to college at Princeton, did graduate PhD doctoral work at UC Berkeley, and has been involved in urban planning and all kinds of like really difficult stuff. <laughs> and through it all, has found ways for people of very different perspectives to come together and serve the common good. And so, David, we are so thrilled that you are here with us today. Thank you for joining us for this little Verge 2021 preview. Sure. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. David, as we get to know you and anticipate learning with you, can you tell us a little bit about what your spiritual upbringing was like? My parents are both Depression era children. And my father's father was a minister. And so when I grew up in Detroit in the 60s and 70s, I would not say that we were super regular churchgoers. We went sometimes, especially when I was a younger child. But they they had a certain level of religious focus, not a super high level of that, but not unlike many Black folks from working class backgrounds. I did go to an elementary school that was a Lutheran school, and then I went to public school for a while. And then um, because <laughs> I was getting bullied, I had a, a teacher who was like, this kid needs to be in a different situation. And I was getting bullied largely in the context of the, the a kind of a demographic change that was happening in my neighborhood. My neighborhood was changing rapidly. Like when we got there when I was five, we were like the third black family within a big radius. And by the time eight years later, there were like, it was 50% black. Detroit is still one of the most racially segregated places around. So basically I was a, a college bound middle-class kind of a nerdy 
nerdy kid who was being who clearly in a certain type of class status, a little bit above the working class people who were coming in. And those class dynamics have a particular way of manifesting themselves in a black community where people who are too nerdy or quote unquote act white get a certain amount of bullying happening. So I'm saying all that to say that I went to a Jesuit high school. So I think that more affected uh, my spiritual evolution than even my going for a few years to a, a Lutheran elementary school. So, in, you know, four years of theology and the whole notion that you have to look at your spiritual side and, and be in an attitude of service is deeply held by the Jesuits. Yeah. So that's the context of my growing up. And when the, all the other Catholic schools of its, of its type moved outside because of to follow where the white people went in my my school stayed like it is still it still is in, in Detroit. It's called University of Detroit High School. It was founded with the University of Detroit in 1877. And unlike the other Catholic schools that all left Detroit to move outside of the city limits. In fact, they were told if they just move outside of eight mile road their their donations will go up, their enrollment will go up, et cetera. And they decided to stay. So the, the racial tumult of the 70s in Detroit was still a part of what we were dealing with. And the, the, the school was facing dilemmas around that. And I think my class was 25% Black. So I'm just saying that the notion of spiritual service was inculcated as a racial dynamics at the time. Wow. So I think that the, the notion that that's something to work on was deeply ingrained. But somehow from there, you went to Princeton, you know, completely different community, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> anybody went to Princeton at the time I was there, any Black person would tell you that the, the white people there were deeply questioning of our legitimacy in being there, right? And that they were, you know, they were very, I mean, first of all, people at Princeton are kind of snooty and self-important in any case. But then, <laughs> then but it's particularly true of the white students compared to the Black students. They're like, what are your SAT scores? Like, there are people were asking that question. And the, the, the white people sometimes ask that of each other, but they certainly would ask that of the Black people because they didn't, because of the belief that the black people didn't deserve to be there. Wow. Right? So there's a, there's a little skepticism around the black presence on campus, mm-hmm. which means that the black people sort of cluster together. And the way that the residential colleges, the, the college system was the like black people tend to cluster in a couple of different places. They can be around each other to, to have an oasis away from these uh, uh, often unpleasant white people. So yeah, um, understood. <laughs> so, <laughs> So it's one kind of environment in Detroit where yeah. people had been arguing over who gets to run the city. I was the, I was old enough to see the first black mayor come in and Coleman Young, I think 1971. And, and all the battles that he had with other executives around this, uh, in, you know, surrounding counties. And then I go to Princeton and of course it's, it, it, obviously it's a different level of different level of conflict, but still yeah. the need for people to talk to each other across these lines was even more clear at that point. Eventually, you then made your way out west to do your PhD and doctoral studies in urban planning. Then at some point along the way, 
you moved from that as a specific focus to helping people work together. Right. And, and you founded a company called the Dialogue Company. How did that happen? What's the evolution? Well, if I want to give a fair, a complete description of how I came to the, the, think dialogue was important, I have to look at my parents who loved each other deeply, but uh, I would say they didn't have the best dialogue skills, put it that way. That's not what they learned. So I described their marriage as 50 years of bickering. It turned out to be much, much more than 66 years of bickering before my mom died. But of course, they didn't, they didn't see it as a problem. I did. So the way I thought the way they talked to each other was just uh, uh, largely unfortunate and that they could be happier if they find better ways of talking to each other. So I would, so I would say that my thing about dialogue comes from growing up in a household where the dialogue problem was manifest. And then I'm in an environment in a city where the dialogue problem at a large scale is manifest, right? So, you yes. know, the whole notion that people could be happier if they know how to talk to each other better was, it, it was reinforced at two different levels. So then when I go out to Berkeley, a friend of mine suggested that I talk to this guy who ran a dialogue course, basically. Hmm. She had this intuition that I might be a useful co-facilitator, even though I had not done that before. Okay. And I started doing that. And it was basically, the course had very limited explicit content. We had some guest speakers, but it was basically 14 students, all five racial groups sitting around talking for three hours every week. And so I, that was my initial exposure to and training in facilitation. And so, so, so it was that uh, course that I think really shifted my focus to dialogue. My dissertation was, was not focused on dialogue explicitly. It was implicitly focused on that because it was on cultural competence and how you uh, need to adjust a social service institution to better fit the population it's serving. Then from there, I got a job at the White House on the Clinton's National Race Initiative Project. I think I was the only person who got a job without nepotistic connections or minimal nepotistic connections, right? Because, you know, (laughs) my White House job and everybody, people know people. Coming to the Northwest Coast Presbytery's Verge 2021 conference on October 9th, and we're so excited about that. Thank you for saying yes to joining us. Sure. Could you just give us a little teaser or a little appetizer? Sure. What are you going to be doing with us? You're doing our keynote for the morning, and what are you prepping for? Well, well, I will be um, trying to um, trying to illuminate the fact that uh, if we want to make progress on important issues of the day, especially issues related to race and diversity, we have got to talk to each other better and talk to each other more honestly. There's so much shame and so much like discomfort Mm -hmm. and it comes out in people not talking honestly about what's happening, Hmm. especially what's happening with them. People are easy to talk about how much racism there is in the world, but not how much there is in them. And it turns out that if you talk about how much is in you, you transform little moments, right? But people don't want to do that. People are ashamed. And one of the things that we'll do is ask, use audience polling. I've written a book about audience polling. My second book was about how to use audience polling to make meetings go differently. 
And one of the things that, you know, so people can like I'll ask people questions and people will answer anonymously. And what we're likely to find is that people have a certain frequency of noticing they have bias and a different frequency of how much they talk about it. <laughs> right. Oh, when people talk about racism, they talk about racism in you or in the society, but not in themselves, which ultimately is the most transformative thing to do. So part of what we'll talk about and illustrate is the gap between how we experience these issues and how much we talk about them and to explore like what's up with that why is that happening and what could happen if we had a different attitude about that so compelling the gap between how much we notice it and how much we're willing to engage it or talk about it right huh well, this is going to be rich. How fabulous! Yeah, it'll be rich. And then, and I'll also talk about like, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna shift that, what are some things you got to tap into? You know, some yeah. parts of yourself. I will undoubtedly talk about the three C's of of effective engagement: candor, compassion, and courage. What do those look like to try to bring those to bear within your within conversations or within relationships? What does that look like to do that uh, under the my finding that if you do that, you can have a different kind of an impact on other people than now when a lot of people who think that racism is a problem, which is about half of the half of white folks are basically so yeah. sidetrack half about it. White people are split in half about whether racism is an issue they should be thinking about. Like half of them think yes and half of them think no. And the, the half who think yes have really poor conversational skills with have to think no. So we're going to talk about if you want to be more effective and people are frustrated, you know, I don't know if you've, have you known people who like, like, I'm not talking to, I'm not talking to my cousin until Trump's out of office. Somebody actually told me that. Like, I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if you experienced that, heard but, it. but there's a, yeah, there's a, uh, there's a, a kind of a willingness to kind of like disconnect from people that is really mm-hmm. um, uh, shocking to me as a black person. <laughs> like, Come yeah. on, white people, <laughs> be a little nice to each other, right? Um, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> yeah, so, um, right. so uh, part of what we'll talk about is what happens if you have a different attitude toward the conversation. And we'll talk about what it means to manifest more candid, compassion, and courage. What, what might that look like to do that? In, in addition to admitting the candor of admitting your own racial problematic thoughts, yeah. what happens if you approach the conversation differently? Hmm. So that'll be some of what we'll talk about. Love it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be great. When you think of joining us, is there anything you're looking forward to? I'm interested in trying to learn uh, what people think keeps them from being a more effective ally. People's understanding of the problematic behaviors in the ally community, as well as what keeps them from being more effective, I think is something that I want to get a good handle on. That's great. Well, I can tell you that the people who participate in this conference are people who want to make a difference in their communities, in their families, in their schools, in their neighborhoods. Part of what I'm trying to encourage people to do is to 
leveraged their distance from the from the boot of racism, Ooh. right? It's, and and part of, part of what happens is that people kind of like they, they they have this outrage by proxy, okay? That is not actually it's not actually helpful. It's actually the opposite of helpful. Um, and so part of what we need to talk about is like how can people who are who care about racism but are not directly victimized by it leverage the fact that they're not victimized by it in terms of showing up differently from places of compassion when dealing with people who would manifest problematic views. That's outstanding. People think that what we want them to do is to be mad. No, no. stay calm. Nice. You know? Oh, this is going to be so good. The problem of people interacting across racial lines, that is an issue. That's a challenge to work on that. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at people's social groups, I think that, you know, for the most part, people's social groups are highly segregated, right? The average, the, the typical Latino person, like the people in their social group are 60% Latino, black people, 80% black, white people, 90% white. Oh, interesting. So we're, we're highly segregated. So if we're going to make progress racially, much less progress on the problem of white disbelief and racism. Yeah. That's going to come from white people talking to other white people. Hey, and then is is there anything that you would like to share with us about what would be good for participants to do, if anything, to prep themselves to get the most out of this, uh-huh. prepare their mind and their heart to uh, really engage this well? Right. Um, that's a good question. Um, I would say think about two or three people that they that they most want to influence on racial issues thinking about that uh really it, it provides a focus for what we're talking about if you talk about these concepts you, you can use somebody's face in mind and that's helpful to to frame and to make the the thing i'm things i'll be talking about come more alive fantastic well dr david camp thanks so much for joining us today we are so looking forward to seeing you live on october 9th at verge and God bless you between now and then. All right. Well, same to you. Same to you, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here and uh, I look forward to it too. so much to my special guest, David Camp, today. You can learn more about David at davidcamptcampt.com and learn more about The Dialogue Company that he founded at thedialoguecompany.org. David will be speaking at the Verge Ministry Leadership Conference, available wherever you have access to Zoom. Learn more at verge.northwestcoast.org. Our producer and musical composer for On The Verge is Jean Chamant. And editor and chief publicist is Janine Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>